Chapter sixty three of David Elginbrod. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. David Elginbrod by George MacDonald. Chapter sixty three. Forebodings. Faust. If heaven was made for man, twas made for me. Good angel. Faustus, repent, yet heaven will pity thee. Bad angel. Thou art a spirit, God cannot pity thee. Faust. Be I a devil, yet God may pity me. Bad angel. Too late. Good angel. Never too late, if Faustus will repent. Bad angel. If thou repent, devils will tear thee in pieces. Old man. I see an angel hover o'er thy head, and with a vial full of precious grace offers to pour the same into thy soul. Marlowe, Dr. Faustus Mr. Appleditch had had some business misfortunes, not of a heavy nature, but sufficient to cast a gloom over the house in Dervish Town, and especially over the face of his spouse, who had set her heart on a new carpet for her drawing-room, and feared she ought not to procure it now. It is wonderful how conscientious some people are towards their balance at the banker's. How the drawing-room, however, could come to want a new carpet is something mysterious, except there is a peculiar power of decay inherent in things deprived of use. These influences operating, however, she began to think that the two scions of grocery were not drawing nine shillings worth a week of the sap of divinity. This she hinted to Mr. Appleditch. It was resolved to give Hugh warning. And it would involve some awkwardness to state reasons. Mrs. Appleditch resolved to quarrel with him as the easiest way of prefacing his discharge. It was the way she took with her maids of all work, for it was grand in itself and always left her with a comfortable feeling of injured dignity. As a preliminary course, she began to treat him with still less politeness than before. Hugh was so careless of her behaviour that this made no impression upon him. But he came to understand it all afterwards from putting together the remarks of the children and the partial communications of Mr. Appleditch to Miss Talbot, which that good lady innocently imparted to her lodger. At length one day she came into the room where Hugh was more busy in teaching than his pupils were in learning, and seated herself by the fire to watch for an opportunity. This was soon found, for the boys, rendered still more inattentive by the presence of their mother, could not be induced to fix the least thought upon the matter in hand, so that Hugh was compelled to go over the same thing again and again without success. At last he said, I am afraid, Mrs. Appleditch, I must ask you to interfere, for I cannot get any attention from the boys to-day. And how could it be otherwise, Mr. Sutherland? when you keep wearing them out with going over and over the same thing, till they are sick of it. Why don't you go on? How can I go on when they have not learned the thing they are at? That would be to build the chimneys before the walls. It is very easy to be witty, sir, but I beg you will behave more respectfully to me in the presence of my children, innocent lambs. 
Looking round at the moment, Hugh caught in his face what the eldest lamb had intended for his back, a grimace hideous enough to have procured him instant promotion in the kingdom of apes. The mother saw it too, and added, You see, you cannot make them respect you. Really, Mr. Sutherland. Hugh was about to reply to the effect that it was useless in such circumstances to attempt teaching them at all, some utterance of which sort was watched for as the occasion for his instant dismission. But at that very moment a carriage and pair pulled sharply up at the door, with more than the usual amount of quadrupedation, and mother and sons darted simultaneously to the window. "'My!' cried Johnny, "'what a rum go! Isn't that a jolly carriage, Peetie?' "'Papa's bought a carriage!' shouted Peetie. "'Be quiet, children,' said their mother, as she saw a footman get down and approach the door. "'Look at that buffer,' said Johnny. "'Do come and see this grand footman, Mr. Sutherland. He's such a gentleman.' A box on the ear from his mother silenced him. The servant, entering with some perturbation a moment after, addressed her mistress, for she dared not address any one else while she was in the room. "'Please, um, the carriage is Aston after Mr. Sutherland.' "'Mr. Sutherland?' "'Yes, um.' The lady turned to Mr. Sutherland, who, although surprised as well, was not inclined to show his surprise to Mrs. Appleditch. "'I did not know you had carriage, friends, Mr. Sutherland,' said she with a toss of her head. "'Neither did I.' answered Hugh, but I will go and see who it is. When he reached the street he found Harry on the pavement, who, having got out of the carriage and not having been asked into the house, was unable to stand still from impatience. As soon as he saw his tutor he bounded to him and threw his arms round his neck, standing as they were in the open street. Tears of delight filled his eyes. Come, 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 said Harry, we all want you. Who wants me? Mrs. Elton and you friend me. Come, get in. And he pulled Hugh towards the carriage. I cannot go with you now. I have pupils here. Harry's face fell. When will you come? In half an hour. Hurrah! I shall be back exactly in half an hour, then. Do be ready, please, Mr. Sutherland. I will. Harry jumped into the carriage, telling the coachman to drive where he pleased, and be back at the same place in half an hour. Hugh returned into the house. As may be supposed, Margaret was the means of this happy meeting. Although she saw plainly enough that Euphra would like to see Hugh, she did not for the same time make up her mind to send for him. The circumstances which made her resolve to do so were these. For some days Euphra seemed to be gradually regaining her health and composure of mind. One evening, after a longer talk than usual, Margaret had left her in bed and had gone to her own room. She was just preparing to get into bed herself, when a knock at her door startled her, and going to it, she saw Euphra standing there, pale as death, with nothing on but her nightgown, notwithstanding the bitter cold of an early and severe frost. She thought at first she must be walking in her sleep, but the scared intelligence of her open eyes soon satisfied her that it was not so. "'What is the matter, dear Miss Cameron?' she said as calmly as she could. "'He is coming. He wants me. If he calls me, I must go.' "'No,' 
you shall not go rejoined margaret firmly i must i must answered euphra wringing her hands do come in said margaret you must not stand there in the cold let me get into your bed better let me go with you to yours that will be more comfortable for you oh yes please do margaret threw a shawl round euphra and went back with her to her room he wants me he wants me he will call me soon said euphra in an agonized whisper as soon as the door was shut what shall i do come to bed first and we will talk about it there as soon as they were in bed margaret put her arm around euphra who was trembling with cold and fear and said has this man any right to call you no no answered euphra vehemently then don't go but i am afraid of him defy him in god's name but besides the fear there is something that i can't describe that always keeps telling me no not telling me pushing me no drawing me as if i could not rest a moment till i go i cannot describe it i hate to go and yet i feel that if i were cold in my grave i must rise and go if he called me i wish i could tell you what it is like it is as if some demon were shaking my soul till i yielded and went oh don't despise me i can't help it my darling i don't i can't despise you you shall not go to him but i must answered she with a despairing faintness more convincing than any vehemence and then began to weep with a slow hopeless weeping like the rain of a november eve margaret got out of bed euphra thought she was offended starting up she clasped her hands and said oh margaret i won't cry don't leave me don't leave me she entreated like a chidden child no no i don't mean to leave you for a moment lie down again dear and cry as much as you like i'm going to read a little bit out of the new testament to you i am afraid i can't listen to it never mind don't try i want to read it margaret got a new testament and read part of that chapter of st john's gospel which speaks about human labour and the bread of life she stopped at these words for i came down from heaven not to do mine own will but the will of him that sent me euphra's tears had ceased the sound of margaret's voice which if it lost in sweetness by becoming more scotch when she read the gospel yet gained thereby in pathos and the power of the blessed words themselves had soothed the troubled spirit a little and she lay quiet the count is not a good man miss cameron you know he is not margaret he is the worst man alive then it cannot be god's will that you should go to him but one does many things that are not god's will but it is god's will that you should not go to him euphra lay silent for a moment suddenly she exclaimed then i must not go to him got out of bed threw herself on her knees by the bedside and holding up her clasped hands said in low tones that sounded as if forced from her by agony i won't i won't oh god i will not help me help me margaret knelt beside her and put her arm round her euphra spoke no more but remained kneeling 
with her extended arms and clasped hands lying on the bed, and her head laid between them. At length Margaret grew alarmed and looked at her, but she found that she was in a sweet sleep. She gently disengaged herself, and covering her up soft and warm, left her to sleep out her God-sent sleep undisturbed, while she sat beside and watched for her waking. She slept thus for an hour. Then, lifting her head and seeing Margaret, she rose quietly, as if from her prayers, and said with a smile, "'Margaret, I was dreaming that I had a mother.' "'So you have, somewhere.' "'Yes, so I have, somewhere.' she repeated, and crept into bed like a child, lay down, and was asleep again in a moment. Margaret watched her for another hour, and then, seeing no signs of restlessness, but that, on the contrary, her sleep was profound, lay down beside her, and soon shared in that repose, which to weary women and men is God's best gift. She rose at her usual hour the next day, and was dressed before Euphra awoke. It was a cold, grey December morning, with the hoar-frost lying thick on the roofs of the houses. Euphra opened her eyes while Margaret was busy lighting the fire. Seeing that she was there, she closed them again, and fell once more fast asleep. Before she woke again, Margaret had some tea ready for her, after taking which she felt able to get up. She rose, looking more bright and hopeful than Margaret had seen her before. But Margaret, who watched her intently through the day, saw a change come over her cheer. Her face grew pale and troubled. Now and then her eyes were fixed on vacancy, and again she would look at Margaret with the woe-begone expression of countenance. But presently, as if recollecting herself, would smile and look cheerful for a moment. Margaret saw that the conflict was coming on, if not already begun, that at least its shadow was upon her, and thinking that if she could have a talk with Hugh about what he had been doing, it would comfort her a little, and divert her thoughts from herself, even if no farther or more pleasantly than to the Count. She let Harry know Hugh's address, as given in the letter to her father. She was certain that, if Harry succeeded in finding him, nothing more was necessary to ensure his being brought to Mrs. Elton's. As we have seen, Harry had traced him to Buclic Terrace. Hugh re-entered the house in the same mind in which he had gone out, namely, that after Mrs. Appleditch's behaviour to him before his pupils, he could not remain their tutor any longer, however great his need might be of the pittance he received for his services. But although Mrs. Appleditch's first feeling had been jealousy of Hugh's acquaintance with carriage people, the toadyism which is so essential an element of such jealousy had by this time revived, and when Hugh was proceeding to finish the lesson he had begun, intending it to be his last, she said, "'Why don't you ask your friend into the drawing-room, Mr. Sutherland?' "'Good gracious, the drawing-room,' thought Hugh, but answered, "'He will fetch me when the lesson is over.' "'I am sure, sir, any friends of yours that like to call upon you here will be very welcome. It will be more agreeable to you to receive them here, of course, for your accommodation at poor Miss Talbot's, is hardly suitable for such visitors. "'I am sorry to say, however,' answered Hugh, "'that after the way you have spoken to me to-day, in the presence of my pupils, "'I cannot continue my relation to them any longer.' "'Ho, ho!' retorted the lady, indignation and scorn mingling with mortification. "'Our grand visitors have set our backs up. 
very well mr sutherland you will oblige me by leaving the house at once don't trouble yourself pray to finish the lesson i will pay you for it all the same anything to get rid of a man who insults me before the very faces of my innocent lambs and please to remember she added as she pulled out her purse while hugh was collecting some books he had lent the boys that when you were starving my husband and i took you in and gave you employment out of charity pure charity mr sutherland here is your money good morning mrs appleditch said hugh and walked out with his books under his arm leaving her with the money in her hand he had to knock his feet on the pavement in front of the house to keep them from freezing for half an hour before the carriage arrived to take him away as soon as it came up he jumped into it and was carried off in triumph by harry mrs elton received him kindly euphra held out her hand with a slight blush and the quaint familiarity of an old friend hugh could almost have fallen in love with her again from compassion for her pale worn face and subdued expression mrs elton went out in the carriage almost directly and euphra begged harry to leave them alone as she had something to talk to mr sutherland about have you found any trace of count halkar hugh she said the moment they were by themselves i am very sorry to say i have not i have done my best i am quite sure of that i just wanted to tell you that from certain indications which no one could understand so well as myself i think you will have more chance of finding him now i am delighted to hear it responded hugh if i only had him euphra sighed paused and then said but i am not sure of it i think he is in london but he may be in bohemia for anything i know i shall however in all probability know more about him within a few days hugh resolved to go at once to falconer and communicate to him what euphra had told him but he said nothing to her as to the means by which he had tried to discover the count for although he felt sure that he had done right in telling falconer all about it he was afraid lest euphra not knowing what sort of a man he was might not like it euphra on her part did not mention margaret's name for she had begged her not to do so you will tell me when you know yourself perhaps i will if i can i do wish you could get the ring i have a painful feeling that it gives him power over me that can only be a nervous fancy surely he ventured to say perhaps it is i don't know but still without that there are plenty of reasons for wishing to recover it he will put it to a bad use if he can but for your sake especially i wish we could get it thank you you were always kind no she replied without lifting her eyes i brought it all upon you but you could not help it not at the moment but all that led to it was my fault she paused and suddenly resumed i will confess do you know what gave rise to the reports of the house being haunted no it was me wandering about it at night looking for that very ring to give to the count it was shameful but i did those reports prevented me from being found out but i hope not many ghosts are so miserable as i was you remember my speaking to you of mr arnold's jewels yes perfectly i wanted to find out through you where the ring was but i had no intention of involving you i am sure you had not 
don't be too sure of anything about me. I don't know what I might have been led to do. But I am very sorry. Do forgive me. I cannot allow that I have anything to forgive. But tell me, Euphra, were you the creature in white that I saw in the ghost walk one night? I don't mean the last time. Very likely, she answered, bending her head yet lower with a sigh. Then who was the creature in black that met you? And what became of you then? Did you see her? rejoined Euphra, turning paler still. I fainted at sight of her. I took her for the nun that hangs in that horrid room. So did I, said Hugh. But you could not have lain long, for I went up to the spot where you vanished and found nothing. I suppose I got into the shrubbery before I fell, or the Count dragged me in. But was that really a ghost? I feel now as if it was a good messenger, whether ghost or not, come to warn me if I had the courage to listen. I wish I had taken the warning. They talked about these and other things till Mrs. Elton, who had made Hugh promise to stay to lunch, returned. When they were seated at table, the kind-hearted woman said, Now, Mr. Sutherland, when will you begin again with Harry? I do not quite understand you, answered Hugh. Of course you will come and give him lessons, poor boy. He will be broken-hearted if you don't. I wish I could, but I cannot, at least yet, for I know his father was dissatisfied with me. That was one of the reasons that made him send Harry to London. Harry looked wretchedly disappointed, but said nothing. I never heard him say anything of the sort. I am sure of it, though. I am very sorry he has mistaken me, but he will know me better some day. I will take all the responsibility, persisted Mrs. Elton. But unfortunately the responsibility sticks too fast for you to take it. I cannot get rid of my share if I would. You are too particular. I am sure Mr. Arnold never could have meant that. This is my house, too. But Harry is his boy. If you will let me come and see him sometimes, I shall be very thankful, though. I may be useful to him without giving him lessons. Thank you, said Harry with delight. Well, well, I suppose you are so much in request in London that you won't miss him for a pupil. On the contrary, I have not a single engagement. If you could find me one, I should be exceedingly obliged to you. Dear, 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 said Mrs. Elton, then you shall have Harry. Oh, yes, please take me, said Harry beseechingly. No, I cannot. I must not. Mrs. Elton rang the bell. James, tell the coachman I want the carriage in an hour. Mrs. Elton was as submissive to her coachman as ladies who have carriages generally are, and would not have dreamed of ordering the horses out so soon again for herself, but she forgot everything else when a friend was in need of help, and became perfectly pachydermatous to the offended looks or indignant hints of that important functionary. Within a few minutes after Hugh took his leave, Mrs. Elton was on her way to repeat a visit which she had already paid the same morning, and to make several other calls with the express object of finding pupils for Hugh. But in this she was not so successful as she had expected. In fact, no one whom she could think of wanted such services at present. She returned home quite downhearted, and all but convinced that nothing could be done before the approach of the London season.
End chapter 63